All right, so tonight we are going to be picking it up in chapter 19 of 2 Samuel. We went through a couple couple chapters on Tuesday night, including this chapter. And as we come to chapter 19, we're just going to focus on these first few verses, verses 1 through 8. And this is the part of the story where Absalom, David's son, has led that rebellion against him. And David has fled for his life with a good portion of his court and his family and all this stuff. But his son Absalom, from the Canaanite wife, has led this rebellion against him. And there was a, a war involving tens of thousands, a battle involving tens of thousands of troops in the forest of Ephraim. And there in that battle, Absalom, with his long hair, was caught in the thickets and caught, his mule took off and he was caught hanging, literally, like his glory was his hair. And, and he was caught in the shrub, if you will, the branches that way. And Joab came on the scene and executed him. He, Joab, the chief commander for the army of Israel, executed him, contrary to David's request that no one would harm Absalom. And Joab killed him. Remember, Joab already killed Abner in the time of peace with the, the blood of war, which will be held accountable for later on as we get further in the text. But Joab has executed Absalom, and the news has come back to David. And there in the latter part of chapter 18, David said five times he's weeping for his son Absalom. And it said that the king was deeply moved, and he wept over the gate. And he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So five times he says, my son. And there's great grief for David. I mean, you think we can all just gather our thoughts right now. And some of you are older, most of you are older, actually, with adult kids in many cases. And, and adult kids can make great decisions, and they can make really bad decisions. But whether they're making great decisions or bad decisions, parents love their children, and they love their kids so much. And we just want to keep the peace and, in many cases, have access to the grandkids, you know, let the reader understand. And you just, you just wish the best, and you want the best for your adult kids. And we all make choices. We are self-determined, created beings in the image of God, marred by sin. And even when we're saved, we don't always make the best choices. And when we're unsaved, we generally don't, for sure. And it can break a parent's heart, a mom, a dad, whatever, and those relationships that God has given us in the human experience. And it crushes us. And David, of course, had multiple wives and multiple sons, contrary to what God had for him. And David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, and had Uriah, her husband, killed in battle, it was pronounced by the Lord upon him that he would have, the soul would not depart from his household. And now it's a double whammy for him because he's grieving as a parent would for an adult child, one that raised her hand against you, but you loved him. And we see that in the latter part of chapter 18. And it's like, how? and, and you're grieving not just because he's dead, but you know back to the sin with Bathsheba and that God had pronounced it through Nathan the prophet. And it's just got to be the sickest, grievous feeling imaginable. We, we have to understand our context. Like, the grief upon David's heart, as we come to chapter 19, just has to be the deepest level of human sorrow and grief. Because it's not just the grief of your adult son being killed by your general. Not just the grief that your adult son led, took, tried to take everything from you that God gave you. But it's the grief of knowing that, like, your own sins have caught up to you two, three decades later, and you're not young and strong and victorious over Goliath anymore, like we were singing earlier with that song with Joe, the new song, but you're, ah, man, when you get older sometimes, don't you just wish you could go back and be younger again and start all over? 
and you're, think, and you're 30 saying, yeah. <laughs> you're trying to imagine it's 61, okay? So the context is so much sorrow and grief for David. For It's just coming from multiple angles. And we need to understand this because we're going to look at a very despondent and despondent and despairing man. He's our, one of our heroes. We sang about David in that song. But he is despondent and he's in despair. And he's so human and so real. And that's what we get tonight. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back in the city that day as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines, and that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you, for you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, that it would have pleased you well. Now therefore, arise, go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from the youth, from your youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate. And they told all the people saying, there is a king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. We just get one critical moment in the life of David after another. I keep saying like, oh, this is the defining moment of his life when he's fleeing Jerusalem and going up the Mount of Olives. Or this is the defining moment of his life when he's holding up the head of Goliath. Or this is the defining moment of his life when he's eating the showbread. Well, this is the defining moment of his life. Because that's how life is, right? I've talked to many people who've written books. I talked to someone this week. He did an interview for Carlsbad High School alumni, and they we were talking, and, I, and they said they're inspired to do great things by just my life for whatever reason. And, and I said, well, we should be inspired because there's always new things to do. And she said, well, I wrote a book this year. I go, that's amazing. That's a big deal to write a book. Wouldn't you agree? Like Kelly Slater wrote a book. The pro surfer, he wrote a book. It's called Pipe Dreams. I'm like, it takes, time, it takes a lot of effort to write a book. Well, I've thought to write a book many different times. And you're like, here we go, the book story again. Well, the thing is, I just know, like, the story's still being written. And I know people write a book, like when Pete Carroll was a coach at USC, he wrote a book about his life at USC. Then he wrote a book about winning the Super Bowl with the Seahawks, right? Like, you can write books as you're going, but me, I'm like, I don't even know where the story's going anyways. The book I write, by the time it gets published, it's like it's old news anyways. Because we're living life. Our life is a book. Our life is a story. Our life is a tapestry. Our life, according to Ephesians 2, is in faith in Jesus, a work of art. And all the colors we can muddle together, the Lord redeems those colors and makes something special out of it. That's the beauty of the gospel of grace. Even our worst days. And this is David's story. And yet again, we have a a frame grab from a a night, a day, a night, a 24-hour period that is so crucial that if he does not heed the counsel of Joab, yes, Joab, If he does not heed the counsel of Joab this very moment, because this counsel is valid, it's important, and it is urgent. You know, we talk about things when 
you give wisdom or counsel or advice and you might say it's time sensitive or you might be able to think about it. Like there's certain things that we can make decisions on. We can think about it. We have time. We can pray over it. But some things are incredibly time sensitive. They're crucial. And this decision and this exhortation is time sensitive and it has to, it demands David's attention at the highest level with every Paul bearing in his system, if you will, for the most critical decision of his life. And if he doesn't act now swiftly, decisively, apart from his personal emotions of grief of losing his son and grief over his sins coming back to haunt him, if he doesn't respond properly and appropriately right now, it's all gone. And when Joab says, you don't even know, all the evil you've ever endured will seem like nothing if you do not respond properly right now as we'd say, in Jesus' name, to this situation and do the right thing right now. It's critical, it's time-sensitive, and it's so raw. David's emotions, Absalom, 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 five, five times plus three, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. He's in such grief, you can't even pull him out of the grief. He's like in the emergency room, the person you love is dead. You can't, it's like just, you you, you My dad, I've shared this before, but when he was a Marine, one of his tours was Guam. It was my earliest childhood memories, Guam. And he was a recruiter in the Marine Corps. He was an officer, but at the time he was a recruiter during the Vietnam War, 64, 65. And he shared with me a few years back the hardest thing he ever did in his entire military experience. And he's been shot, held off the all-night battle with the Chinese in the Korean War, but the hardest thing he ever did was knock on the door and tell someone that their son had died in the, in the Vietnam War. Guamanian. First Guamanian killed in the Vietnam War. My dad knocked on the door. He was the recruiter for Guamanians to go to the Vietnam War. So he's got to go and knock on the door. You know what he told me? The thing that he says I'll never forget was how, you know, he's there and it's, you know, you've seen it in the movies. You've seen this in the movies. I remember when they knocked on the door to tell me, my mom, that my dad had been wounded in Vietnam a couple years later. But he said, well, you always remember this. That they just, the Guamanians, they just, Polynesian, you know, kind of South Pacific thing, just took it. And he said, the moment he walked away, the door shut, and the wailing was the loudest wailing. He had never heard anything like it before in his life or since. Just the wailing, my dad cried when he told me the story. The wailing, the wailing, and maybe you've seen this moment somewhere. Johnny was a 17-year-old that went to Calvary Chapel High School. He was Egyptian. He had a heart defect. Scott Cunningham had discipled him. He was a really sweet kid. He went to worship generation. We were at Big Calvary. He wasn't going to make it to 18, and, and he didn't. He died at 17, and they, his memorial was over here at Westminster Graveside. And I was there, and Scott Cunningham was there. I always remember Dave Roth being there. He was Dave Roth, if you know Dave Roth. He oversaw that service. And I, I just remember on that occasion, because these are different cultures. That's why I'm sharing, sharing this with you. These are different cultures, Egyptian now. But I will never forget Johnny's parents just weeping. And, you know, like the Middle Eastern, you know, like, you know, like when they throw dust in there, like that, just weeping and just banging on the casket. I'll never forget it. Because this is the kind of emotion we need to touch on to understand the context of David's situation. 
This is not like your team lost the national championship, like when Nick Saban goes to shake hands, you know, with the head coach of Georgia, right? Like, that's, that's, that's not life and death. That's disappointing. That was your dream. You're going to do a press conference and talk to these kids in the locker room, half of them going to the NFL. But that's not the same. That's not the same as your kids disappointed because they didn't get into the college they want to get into. It's not the same as they're brokenhearted because the engagement was broken off. And that's serious. And it's not the same even as, as sad as a divorce, which feels like death. Because they always tell me when I hear about divorce, it's worse than death. But this is so like Absalom, my son, my son. Because I want to reduce the emotions to David so we really understand what he's got to do right now despite how he feels in this moment. He's got to get a hold of himself. And he's got to do it quickly. Because he's not just a husband. He's not just a dad. He's not just a leader. He is the king of God's people under covenant. He is the king of Israel. He is the man after God's own heart. And the whole eyes of the nation are on him. He manages a property the size of Southern California. Wealth in the millions. Even to this day, as I mentioned Tuesday night, Israel, I believe, is the world's number two or number three exporter of all these things, flowers, produce, and all this stuff. And he's in charge of all that. And if he, his emotions are so raw that they want to define him, they want to rule him, but if he doesn't snap, snap out of it, Right now, in this great moment of grief, grief over the loss of his son, grief over feeling the responsibility for the loss of his son, if he doesn't snap out of it right now, time sensitive, it's going to go from bad to worse, which is hard to believe. But Joab the messenger, I mentioned this Tuesday night, it's worth mentioning briefly again. David's had enough of Joab. Like he's going to say, before this chapter is done, he's like, God, do more so to me if I don't replace Job with asthma, you know, right away. Like, he, he, he's like, Joab came and said to him, and David's like, he's fired. He's fired, he's fired, he's fired. I'm going to fire that guy. Because, in fact, the very next, he just says it right after this. He goes, he goes I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to replace this guy. He's gone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, he's out. But then the guy that replaced him showed up late for work. And then Joab kills him anyways, and Joab's still the boss of the military. And David stuck with Joab all the way till eternity. Joab, he never got rid of Joab. In fact, Solomon had to deal with Joab after the fact, when David's in eternity, which we talked about last week even with Shimei and Ziba and those guys. It's not about the messenger, because this messenger is loathed for sure by David. David despises this man, but he can't get rid of him. And we have to get past the messenger. It's not the doctor's fault. They got to tell you what you don't want to hear, or the dean of admissions, or the lawyer. Oh, God help you when the lawyer tells you what you don't want to hear. In Jesus' name, seriously. But the messenger, it's not about the messenger, but the message. And being able by faith, as a woman or a man of God, to receive that message and to respond appropriately and properly in faith to do what's right beyond the vulnerability of our feelings and all the emotions that would rule and reign over us to do what's right. Because you, when you read this story, it is obvious that there's great sorrow, there's great heartache, 
And these are things that happen in the human experience. We all have trials, we have tribulations, we have tragedies, and those things are very real, and they're not, they couldn't be any more real than they are here in chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. And the emotions of David's sorrow and remorse combined like a superstorm, those are real too. So there's obvious factors and there's great reality here, but the bottom line is you got to live, you got to rise up, you got to go forward, and you got to do what the situation demands. And even though it's Joab, of all people telling it to you, it's not even about Joab. Is this, is this the mind of the Lord and this applicable to me? And the answer is yes and amen. In this text, our personal response affects many people. Our personal response to testings, trials, tribulations, and tragedy. Our personal response, the more people we influence, so think husband and wife in a marriage. Think wife and a husband in a marriage. Think parents and children. Think school teacher and classroom. Think pastor and church. Pastor's wife and church. Pastor's wife and women's ministry, whatever it might be. Youth leader in a youth group. I mean, Nate's here tonight. He's had to bury kids from his youth group, from suicide, from boating accidents, from tragedies. And all those kids in Vero Beach watching him and how he responds to those things and how he carries himself when they're carrying the casket out of the large church. And they show up at his youth group two nights later. The same guy as kids from the football team carrying the casket. We prayed for these families when these things happened. There are always more people watching us than we think. And to whom much that woman is given, that man is given, much is required, and our response is critical how we handle things. We can't be afraid of being a high-profile person, male or female, and shrink back from the opportunities that God gives us, but we must realize many people are watching us. And the more that are watching us, the more critical it is that we get past ourselves and being governed by our emotions. And the more important it is we get our eyes on the Lord. And regardless of how we feel, we die to ourselves. And in our weakness, we're made strong through faith in Jesus, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians. And we rise to the occasion, and we do, as the Bible says, see that you do what the occasion requires. That's what we need to do. And it's so hard to do that in the moment of vexing, in the moment of trial, in the moment of tragedy, but we must realize our responses under these types of despondent things affect many other people. Because it said in that very first verse, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. They had a victory. They protected their king. They protected the kingdom. They did all the right things, and they had victory. But because David can't get a hold of his emotions, he's not realizing how impactful it is, how his response is, he's, just, he's taking away their victory. He's, they saved his life. They saved his kingdom. And his emotions unchecked, his response to this tragedy... And perhaps really his own guilt of remorse because it's the, his own sin coming back on him decades later that it says that the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. We have to be really careful in our heartaches, in our darkest days, that we, 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 turn, we have to be careful we don't turn a victory into mourning. And we need to understand that Christ will turn any mourning into a victory. And how we frame it, how we see it, 
if we have the eyes of faith and we see it through the word of God, even the darkest day, and I've seen some people have some really dark days, can be framed through faith. Jesus is brought in the equation and he brings, he brings victory because he is victory. But the people who confess Christ as Lord, men and women, they need to see that victory and believe that victory. Not because they see it in front of them, but because it's promised to all of us through Jesus, through faith in Jesus. Because really what it comes down to is our faith going to stand in our response to tragedies and tribulations and these types of things? Or are we going to, is our faith going to unravel? Because his reaction, his grief, his inability to see the sacrifice of all these wonderful people that loved him would lay their lives down for him. His inability to see what God was doing for good in people of good. Because of his inability to see that, he's so focused on his personal heartache and sorrow that now their victory becomes a time of mourning and defeat for them. Where now they're ashamed because of his response. His personal self. Self. He couldn't get past himself. And because he couldn't, the people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. They were victorious and courageous in battle and said they feel like they're ashamed when you flee in battle. And I've seen parents do this to their kids. I've seen coaches do this to their team. I've seen spouses do this to their spouse. The reason divorce usually follows the death of a child is the parents' inability to go forward together to minister to one another and minister to the children that they have. I mean, you can look up any kind of movie in any different language, and there'll be movies about people who lost a child, and inevitably the other children are neglected because the parents can't get over that and still raise the children that they do have. That's what makes the story of Brian Jameson and Orange County Christian Fellowship so beautiful, because they lost their oldest daughter, Trinity, but they didn't stop living. They grieved, but they didn't stop ministering to their children, and so the number two daughter graduated high school and is, is off to college to be a business major. In about two weeks. And they're going to be at the beach tomorrow with us for a baptism. They didn't quit living. They got past their personal sorrow and they went on to do what they always did. Heidi and Brian continued to raise their children, their other three daughters, to the Lord. And we laughed and we danced at Padre games. And we've just enjoyed the journey and we've cried and we've done... I'll never forget them being at... Jake and Leah's wedding. Most of us missed it. So many of you were at that wedding. But we're at John Randall's church in San Juan Capistrano, the historical building. And he let us have the fellowship hall for the wedding reception. And we had dancing. No alcohol, of course, but dancing, it was, a time, it was so fantastic. And what I remember, it was such a joyful night for us. And then Jake and Leah went down to the train station there at Capistrano, got on the train to go to San Diego. It was a beautiful ending, like 1130 at night. We're all down there waving goodbye to them, the honeymooners, and off they went. But I remember coming back, and, well, there's Brian and Heidi. They came to the wedding, but you, you, you invited them, but it was just right after Trinity passed away, right? Can you imagine how awkward it felt for us? Like, we invited them, and they were there. Our daughters, it's the most joyful day of our life ever. And it just reminds them that they're never going to have that day with Trinity. And there they were helping John Randall clean up the property 
and straighten everything up for what's coming the next day. And I always remember like, gosh, I wish there was something I could do for their grief today because I'm so full of joy with Jennifer, but there's nothing I can do. Then at Nate and Hannah's wedding, they came back to the wedding and that was more joyful and we stayed up all night. Nate and Hannah got married, and Brian and Heidi were with us in the guest house with me and Jennifer. We were leaving at 4 the next morning to head back to California, but we had to take the Silvados, who shot the wedding, the wedding photographers, to Orlando Airport. Brian and Heidi wanted to share all that had been in their hearts since they lost their daughter from midnight to 4 a.m. We never went to sleep. What's your point, Joy? My point is... We all grieve. We all have sorrow. We're not impersonal. God gives us sadness and anger and remorse and joy and all those things, and we see it in Jesus in his ministry. But they can't rule over us. And we need to be sensitive how they're working for other people. I would not expect Brian and Heidi to be dancing at Jake and Leah's wedding, and they weren't. It was a season of sorrow, and we were sensitive to it, but they still came down to support Jake and Leah. Now, I've danced with them at the Padre game at a different time. There's Proverbs about this, right? You know the Proverbs. There's Proverbs about this. People watch. Our children watch. The people we lead watch. And we need to just make sure that we never go down that rabbit hole that we can't come back from, as they say. Because some people do go down in the, in the grief and sorrow. Some people go down that rabbit hole and they never come back. We've done memorials here for suicide in this building. One just this year, former congregant. Mike Harris doing the memorial. It's so hard to be here. As a pastor, if someone's sitting under your teaching for years, off and on, and take his life, you're just like, but I don't let people put that on me, so don't think I did. I, didn't, I, I don't understand mental illness. I never will. I don't claim to. All I know is you go down that. All I know is there's a future and hope in Jesus Christ. And things are always forward with Jesus. That's what I know. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you don't think God can pull you out of that depression, he, he won't. Because your faith is an accountable element to the equation. I'm not saying people don't struggle with depression and despair, obviously, now more than ever. But I just know that cross and that empty tomb is a future and a hope. And it's always forward with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I understand despair. It's as if David could take his life in this, these verses. You could almost see him taking his life in despair. Just, just so bereaved, he just runs out the third floor and takes his life. But you can't do that. That's never an option. People are watching. I think that's the hardest thing about suicide is picking up the pieces. You got to pick up the pieces for the living. You're gone, you're gone, and you're gone. But the people that, that look to you to be a provider, the people that look to you to provide love and nurturing and care, faith, all that, and someone else has to pick up the pieces because you, you just can't get past yourself and realize you're making other people ashamed and, and so often depressing people and, and despondent people, they make people around them ashamed and they turn joy to sorrow instead of what the Bible says, sorrow to joy. 
Because the Bible tells us he'll turn our mourning into joy. But some people who profess Jesus, they turn joy into sorrow. What an exhortation this text is. I'm not saying there's no bad days with Jesus, but I'll take a bad day with Jesus over the best day on earth without him. And that bad day with Jesus, he's right by your side. He's never, never going to leave you or forsake you. And when Mike Harris gave that message here for that memorial not so long ago, he, he talked about how God never forsook that person. He didn't forsake him there or there or the people that left behind. But I just thought, my goodness, I'm glad Mike Harris is doing this memorial, not me. That's what I thought sitting back there on that day. We have to get past ourselves in the day of sorrow and grief and realize people are watching us and we need to lead them in an example of faith that Jesus will see this through. This too will pass. Like a hurricane or typhoon, it will pass. It may be intense. It may leave a wake of destruction, but it will pass. Divorce, healing, it will pass. Loss of loved ones, it will pass pass. We can't leave an example that shows a lack of faith, despondency and despair that that disgraces the gospel of hope and makes people feel ashamed when they should feel peace in their faith. Because even if they didn't want to feel victorious this day, they certainly should have felt like they accomplished the right thing this day. And instead they're made ashamed Because, you know, when people take their life, by the way, as long as we're on suicide, we all know what happens when you love someone who takes their life as suicide. Mike Harris addressed it right here. You ask yourself, what could I have done different? Should I have said this? Could I have said that? Could I have done that? What if I had responded to that call? What if I had followed up with this or done that? Listen, there's a trillion galaxies in this universe, and if God needs you to follow up on every call, we're really in trouble. If the God of all comfort who knows the deepest recesses of our heart, David, Psalm 139, can't heal someone from the slew of despondence, which David even talked about in the miry clay, then who's gonna, do you think you can do any better than the Lord himself ministering by his spirit to someone who confesses him as their Lord? Of course not. Every memorial for a suicide is could have, should have, would have for the people that are there. The parents, the siblings, the children, It's so sad. I've watched people go, oh, absolutely, 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 and never come back. I'm telling everyone listening to me right now, no matter how despondent and how despaired you are, don't just sit there and say, absolutely, 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 and go down that rabbit hole and never come back. There's too many people watching you and all the faith that you've lived and demonstrated, the money you've given, the things you've done and how you served. Don't disqualify it on a bad day with despair and despondency on the worst day of the human experience. Let our faith stand and shine brightest on that day. Not to be a day of despondency. People are watching. When we lost our son, all I could think about is how many people were watching. And my friend who's in the wedding, Greg Marshall, said to me at our son's memorial, Joey, everyone's watching how you respond. We know how you can praise the Lord when you win the pipe masters. Let's see how you respond when you're burying your son. It's just the way it is. People are watching. We also see what Joab said. said, Today you have disgraced your servants. And he said, For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive, for today perceive that if Absalom had lived, you would have been more happy with that. This is important too. 
Because look at the choice of words that Joab uses here. And he's speaking on behalf of everybody because they had all gone to their tents. They, it's like when you come back to the locker room, you should be celebrating a big victory. They've all gone to their, their, their tents. And he goes, I have perceived this is crucial because people have a perception. So we need to be aware of how we carry ourselves in the trials, in the tragedies, in the tribulations. But then we need to realize people have a perception as well. They're perceiving. Now, we know in life's experiences that people can misunderstand us, right? They can misunderstand our intent, our motives, and they can perceive the wrong thing. But it would seem that Joab perceived it correctly. I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, it would have pleased you well. That's just so... The perception of how we respond to despair and heartache is so crucial. Again, people must see our faith. We can be misunderstood in our grieving. We can be in public in our grieving. You know, it's interesting, but there are many famous people I could I disagree with so much on their political worldviews because they're antichrist. But nonetheless, I count I, in many cases I count them empathy and compassion. And I for if those that have lost children, for example, John Travolta, John Travolta lost his sixteen-year-old son. So John Travolta starts doing whatever he does, like all those people in Hollywood do this thing, that thing, whatever. I just think this guy buried his son the same age when I was teaching my son Timmy how to drive. I've got nothing to say against John Travolta. Because if I face something like that, I'd face it with the Lord and he faced it without the Lord. Grief is so deep. And we don't always understand how people cope with grief and sorrow and heartache and how we cope with it. We can be misunderstood. I always talk about when John Corson's daughter was killed in the car accident at 16. Here's another 16-year-old. And it was less than three weeks after she passed away. I was at the Southeast Pastors Conference in Merritt Island, Florida. It was 1993 or 94. And I was, Brian Brodison was there and, and uh, Damien Kyle from Modesto. And somehow, because I was Brian's buddy, I was with Damien Kyle and John Corson at this house on the river, the, the intercoastal waterway. And I just, I just had so much respect for John Corson. And like, I, I just couldn't believe that he was there three weeks after his daughter died in a car accident. That he could get on a plane in Oregon and fly to Florida and get up at a pastor's conference and speak to all these pastors like me on the East Coast in the early 90s. And I, I just, I followed him around. I, I just kept staring at him. And when we went out to dinner, I just stared at him. And I tried not to be like that, but I just think, like, how is he doing this? And actually, in my mind, I thought, how come he's just not home crying in a room? Well, that's just, oh, Absalom and Absalom. I know that John Corson's faith, three weeks after his daughter's passing in a car accident, inspired me in the early 90s that you got to get up and you got you to get on with life. And like I've shared this story with the former, one of the top pro servers from America years ago, that whole day Pete Carroll was down there at the pier and we're training and all this stuff. And 
he was in a heat where he couldn't be the champion of the day. And he, he, he fell off every wave and he was, his body language was negative and all this stuff. And his mom screamed at me in front of Pete Carroll and all this stuff. And then I called him later on in the day and I tried to explain to him. I said, you know, there's going to be a day, there could be a day when your wife has cancer. And he goes, I only go for the gold. I go, well, you know, that sounds good on paper when you're 16. But let me tell you in life, there's days you got to get up and go to work when you're not going for the gold. And you're going for copper. Do you understand me? I said, when you're an adult and your wife has cancer and you have a job you don't like, but that's what you got to do. You got to go to work and then you got to take your wife to see the cancer doctor at four in the afternoon. That's what you got to do. You don't, I said, son, you don't always get to go for gold in life. Sometimes copper is what you're hoping for, that you just, just to complete the marathon, just the medal, I finished it. Like, that's how life works. We got to keep going. We got to keep going. You know, we're, we have an example, but the perception of who we are and how we handle it, it's like, I'm so grateful that John Corson gave me the example when I perceived how this man was grieving with his daughter that he continued to minister to the Lord Jesus Christ. What if you lose someone you love and you step into eternity four weeks later? You still got four weeks to serve the Lord and do what he has for you to do. Of course you're going to be grieving. Of course you're going to be mourning. Those are natural things. But you can't stop living. That's the whole point. You can lament when the Marine close, when you close the door on the Marine. You can lament graveside at Westminster. But you can't stop living. And you can't let people perceive that you've given up and you've lost all hope. Because the disciple of Jesus Christ, woman or man, has the hope Hebrews 5 tells us it's an anchor to the soul. And there is no hope like our hope, faith, hope, and love. And our hope is the hope that brings us through every single circumstance of every heartache. And when I, just, when I hear of tragedies and see tragedies and become aware of tragedies, just the worst type of tragedies, particularly ones that Nate had to deal with with his youth group in recent years, I just think like, I'm just so grateful that when we go minister in those situations or when a chaplain shows up or a pastor or the pastor's wife or the deacon's wife, whatever, when they show up, I'm just so grateful that when we're, when we're disciples of Jesus Christ, we're men and women who serve Jesus Christ, that we show up and we actually have truth. And when we present that truth, it's the word of God, it's living and powerful, and it does what it's purpose to do. And we bring hope and we bring life and we bring the kingdom. There is a perception for how we handle grief. And we want to make sure, and heartache and trials and tribulations, and we want to make sure that people can perceive our faith is triumphing in whatever it is we're facing. Because our faith, we overcome everything through our faith. We overcome the devil, sin, the world system, our greatest fears. We overcome all of it through our faith. So we want people to perceive not that we would throw them under the bus or not that we're going to check out on Jesus because it's a bad day, but to perceive that everything that we've proclaimed and exemplified and spoken is now on display for everyone to see that it's true and valid in our life. Or as Paul said, that the crucifixion of Christ was on display in the apostles first and foremost that all the people could see the validity of their faith and their testimony of the glorious gospel, which is what he said to the Corinthians. And then he said that these light afflictions are not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory that's coming. People 
our response is critical, and there's a perception of our response to these things. And we want our spouses, our children, our children's children, our students, our congregants, every sphere of influence that we have over any human being to see us on this day to perceive faith and hope that's an anchor to the soul. And finally, Joab, I, I just, Joab is the, one of the mystery men of the Bible for sure. Look what he says in verse 7. He's, he's given David counsel. Now, therefore, right now, 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 I just share this to you. Now, therefore, therefore means like, let's, let's get to it. Now, right now, therefore, go out and speak comfort. Isn't that awesome? Coming from Joab of all people. Now, therefore, go out and speak comfort. You got to snap out of it right now. Like, Dude, girl, hey, snap out of it. Right now, go speak comfort to your people. You're the king of Israel. And these people have laid their lives on the line for you this day. They had a great victory. They've come back ashamed. They're all in their tents. You go out right now and speak comfort to them. Speak comfort. Because they need to be comforted now, not just you. And regardless of how you feel, you need to speak comfort to them And you need to get everything going forward again. And we see that David, that he did go out and speak comfort. (laughs) Look at David, or Joab. For I swear by the Lord. You know, Joab is like Saul. They both swore by the Lord all the time. But he says, and he exhorts him. He says, now therefore do this. You got to do this. And I swear by the Lord, if you don't go out, that not one will stay with you this night. In other words, this is that night. This is the defining moment of your life right now. In your sorrow, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom. We get it, David. But we all risked our lives for you. Now, I'm telling you right now, if you don't go out and speak comfort to these people right now who've risked their lives for you, you don't even know what evil looks like. For all the evil you've ever gone through in life, from the Philistines to Saul and everything else in between, it won't even compare what your dawn will look like tomorrow morning if you don't fix this right now. And the king arose, and he sat in the gate. Oh, how hard it must have been how hard it is when people have to come to memorials and funerals for people they love who died with tragedy. But you still got to show up and do the funeral. You still got to sit in the front row, you know? You still got to bury graveside like Johnny or Annalise Antes at 16. Oh, you still... You still got to get up and address the people that you love, that's your family. You got to pull it together. You got to get your act together. And you got to pull it together and you got to lead. Deborah in the book of Judges said it best Oh, when leaders lead in Israel and in the crux of life, in the most trying circumstances, that's when women of God and men of God have to step up and just be led of the Lord and speak comfort to his people rally the people and let them know it's going to be okay. Jesus is still on the throne. Every promise is yes and amen. He's not done yet and he's going to come in glory and there'll be no more tears and sorrows where we're going. And that's the facts and that's the truth. Worship generation, right? Speak comfort. Speak comfort, rally the people and you're on the clock, David. And the king arose and he went to the gate 
And they told the people, look, the king's sitting in the gate. All they needed to do was see their king. All they needed to do was see their king. And slowly they began to come out of their tents. They said, hey, the king's sitting in the gate. David must have felt so vulnerable, like his son has died, and they all know it's his sin, and Absalom slept with the concubines in front of the whole city, and just, oh, it's all just a mess. And there he is, as human as you can be, late 50s probably, right? Oh, it's been so hard. Been so hard to see the king that night, but would have been harder not to see the king that night. Amen? We don't want to see our heroes looking like this, but we don't want to see them in a hear that they're in a room lamenting the good things that we did in trying to serve them and bless them, like the servants of David. They had fled to their tent, and they all came back to see David in the gate. And it's one of those things like the book of Job. There's not much to say, is there? Like, you don't need to say anything in this situation. There's not much to say. There's David. We all, the social media is all out there. We know what this is all about. There's Joab, like, here they all come. But there is one final thing to this whole story that I close with tonight that just is so encouraging. So David comes back. Shimei is like, oh, I'm so sorry. Ziba's like, or Mephibosheth's like, oh, Ziba did this and that. David's like, just go figure it out. So he comes back, and he comes back to Jerusalem. But now there's another rebel, not absent, but a different rebel, who's trying to lead Israel astray. And then Joab's got to go get him. And they, they execute him. And finally, after all this drama, all this heartache, all this sorrow, all this bloodshedding, we read in the back end of chapter 20, verse 23, that Joab was over all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jedodiah, was over the Cherethites and the Pelicites. Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was recorder. Shiva was a scribe. Zadok and Abathur were the priest. And Ira the, Jez- the Jarahite was chief minister unto David. And though it doesn't say it right here, we can add to it. And David is fully restored as the king. Which reminds us that the kingdom always goes forward. The kingdom always goes forward. The worship generation tonight, before we go our way, in the midst of this, this book is a challenging book. We've made that quite clear. We all know it's clear. But in the midst of these challenging events where our our hero of the faith is so shredded, I take great comfort and I find great encouragement and I would send all of us home tonight with a great exhortation of faith and forward, onward, and upward in the things of God. Because in the end, after all this stuff goes down, David is back on the throne in the city of David. And these are the people helping him reign. It's like when Job lost everything, and then the book of Job, he's got restored and double what he lost. You see, the typhoon will pass. The hurricane will pass. This too shall pass. In the darkest day, we can say, this too shall pass. And there are very dark days, and the older you get, the more you've lived those dark days, and you know what they feel like. But they did pass, didn't they? There is a life to be lived. There's a new day. Every day is a new day with the Lord. 
And it's always forward, onward, and upward with the Lord. And I just love that as this story concludes, the whole thing of Absalom's rebellion, the consequences of David's sin, Absalom, Absalom, my son, I'm just so grateful when it all runs its course by the end of chapter 20 that David's back in Jerusalem, the 12 tribes are united, he's the king, and everyone's doing what they're supposed to do. He's in charge of the money, they're in charge of the priesthood, they're in charge of the written record. Isn't that a, a happy ending? The people we love go on, we can't bring them back. Some tragedies, obviously there's nothing we can do to rectify them. We can set up a, a, a trust fund in the, in the memory. We can set up a, a 5-1-C-3 to remember our kid that they went through and how we bless other people who go through difficult things. But in the end, we can't bring them back. But we're alive and God's not done. And so this story all ends from the rawness of how we started in chapter 19 to the completion of, verse, of chapter 20. You wake up and you're still the king and there's still things to do. And that's how it is for every one of us in this room with faith in Jesus Christ. Life goes on for the living and a living dog is better than a dead lion, Ecclesiastes, which basically just says to be alive means you're alive and there's things to do and things that aren't done and we need to do them. Because once we're gone, we're gone and no one's coming back. So we have to work through all those human emotions that are raw and vulnerable and keep going forward with the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. No matter what, this too will pass.